0: Welcome to Arrested DevOps, Episode 7, All Together Now. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter.
1: And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter.
0: This episode of Arrested DevOps is brought to you by Tenth Magnitude, helping businesses realize true agility through DevOps and cloud-enabled innovation.
1: Today on ADO, we're going to be talking about collaboration. But as always, we will start with our retrospective. We're going to talk about what we learned since the last episode.
0: Uh, Do you want to go first, Trevor? Sure, I can do that. It's called throwing your co-host under the bus.
2: Yeah, uh,
1: the wheels feel real nice. (laughs) Um, So I actually, in the past uh, couple weeks, I picked the clean code book back up. Um, And it's been, I want to say, four years since I read it last. And it's just, it's amazing that not only the things I've forgotten, but the things I understand way better now. Because... Uh, last time I read it, probably would have been my second or third year in college, uh, and so did not know too much then. Not that I know that much more now, but yeah, it's been great, and it's really helped uh, re you know restructure what I'm focusing on with my code. Matt, what about you? you-
0: Actually, uh, with my retro ties pretty closely into our topic tonight. My team has been working with some collaboration tools. We've been trying to work on different ways to to talk. And so we've been piloting uh, we've been we've been using a tool called FlowDoc to communicate um, across our team, especially with consultants that are on site and not necessarily in the office. And we uh, just installed Hubot into FlowDoc, and Hubot is an IRC-type bot that GitHub wrote um, for some automation, and mostly we've been using it for posting uh, memes and breaking bad quotes in our chat, but apparently there's actually productive things you can do with Hubot as well, but we have yet to utilize them
1: yet. Um, Sounds a lot like our HipChat client.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you can... Hubot, I know, can tie into Campfire, probably can tie into HipChat as well. So so I think that that does tie us pretty, uh, brings us real close into our topic of the night, which is talking about collaboration, and we've got a pretty great panel. So we'd like to introduce our panel first. We have uh, Angela Dugan. Angela, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
2: Great, thanks Matt. Um, So my name is Angela Dugan. Uh, I currently work for Polaris Solutions, which is based here in Chicago, but we have offices in um, St. Louis and Denver. Real small consulting firm, so I won't be offended if people are like, who, who do you work for? Um, Just to give you a little background on what I've done in my past. um, Previous to that, I worked for a small little startup called Microsoft. Um, I was there for about five years as an evangelist, Prior to that, I actually worked at another really small consulting firm in Chicago called Software Architects that people may actually have heard of. Um, so I've been in software for about 15 years, I've uh, done a lot of different things, right? I've been architect, BA, developer, QA, you name it, right? You're a consultant, you kind of do everything. Um, but but now what I've kind of landed in is kind of my dream role at Polaris Solutions, which is um, managing their ALM practice. So. Application lifecycle management. So it's all about collaboration and delivering better software.
1: Great, thanks, Angela. Uh, we've also got Todd Vernon with us tonight. Todd, you want to introduce yourself uh, and maybe your beer as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Takati is the beer of choice tonight uh, that I decided to go with. I wasn't sure, but it uh, it seems to be working out fine. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be uh, it's great to be on the show. Um, I have about. So I, when I got out of college, I started at NASA, right, writing software for uh, X-planes, so the experimental airplanes, um, and I did that for several years. And that's about as unagile as you can get, so, uh, you know, you make one constant change in the code, and you know, if you have to relink the code, then everything in the whole world gets tested again and six months go by. Um, fun experience, but, you know, had kind of the entrepreneurial bug. So. Seven years after that, I started my first company with my co-founders. It's called Raindance Communications. Uh, We uh, we competed with Webex. I did an IPO. Did all that great stuff. Built software, deployed software. Did a totally old school, um, you know, and all the pain that went along with that. uh, Sold that company. My second company was Legit Networks, uh, which sold to Federated Media a couple years ago. Uh, That company is an ad tech company. So we built, um, we built software. We deployed software. We made revenue by the, you know, fraction of a cent, and all the pains that went with that. And we were a, a little more agile, but not. Uh, we actually called it fragile. Uh, but uh, I've heard my, that before. <laughs> yeah. So my that, that's an old joke. My uh, so my 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 new company that's about a year old. I actually decided to kind of look back on my career because I was the CTO of my first company, the CEO of my second. And I actually am in the collaborative uh, software space, specifically around the ops and DevOps uh, mission. And that is simply—it was a selfish kind of maneuver. Having had these companies my whole career, and 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 could see kind of the 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 pretty raw tools that were available to teams that that do this really incredibly tough job, twenty-four by seven. I asked myself, why is it this way? Right? It's a it's really hard, and it ought to be better. and so I built Victor Ops, which is my current company um, that's exactly right in the the uh, kill zone of this uh, this broadcast.
0: Awesome. So yeah, I think we've got we've got some folks that uh, know know what they're talking about. and one of the things that as as we've gone through our episodes, we've talked about a bunch of different things here. We've talked you know through our Long history of two and a half months of existence at this point, but you know we've talked about some myths. We've talked about challenges that people have in DevOps and Agile and and things like that. But it all still comes back to collaboration, and that's why we wanted to talk about this. Is is there's the challenge if we say one of the core precepts of DevOps is we want to break down silos, and we we talk about not wanting to get wrapped around the axle with tools, but this is this is probably an episode where, where tools can come into play because tools can really help um, as far as that goes and I guess something I'm, I'm curious about because I've, I've I've faced this challenge even before I, I knew what DevOps was or cared about DevOps or knew to call it DevOps um, but in a previous incarnation you know I, I hate email I hate email like with the fury of a thousand suns. I think email sucks and should not exist. Um, and I am is like right next to that, you know. I'm not I'm not a fan, but I really, really hate email. And I'm, because there's got to be a, a better way, you know. Uh, and I'm I'm curious to see how do you. What are your thoughts on how you can kind of get people to make that shift, that. Especially folks that are are used to saying email is how I'm used to working. That's how I want to communicate, and we want to use some new type of collaboration tool, something like HipChat or doc or Slack or whatever IRC. Just something that's a little different. How do we get people out of their comfort zone in that way? I I'll
3: go first. I think I think um, it has to be substantially better. I mean that's kind of the bottom line. Um, You know, and I'll, I'll 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 point at some of the things you just said. You know, I one of the things I learned um, in building this company, but also before that at my first company, which was also a collaborative software company, is collaboration works best when it's vertical uh, rather than horizontal. So, like HipChat was a great example of something that you mentioned. was a horizontal collaboration tool. It's fantastic. It's used in tons of organizations. Our platform interfaces with it. Uh, it's very ubiquitous but at the same time it's also super horizontal so you know a salesperson can use it and uh, a DevOps person can use it and a software developer can use it and that's fine but you don't get any of the special sauce of a vertical collaboration platform where it can combine the data and the dialogue and kind of present that in a way that you can expand it and drill into it and you know blow in and out of it and that's where the real value in collaboration comes when it goes vertical right Uh, And there's countless examples of that I can give you, but it's not really for the show. But um, but but I think it all kind of goes back to it has to actually provide a better value than than kind of what was next to it. And I think a lot of people look at email and go, well, you know, or they look at horizontal, you know, basically a horizontal chat and go. Well, it's a broken email because, like, if I'm not there, I don't see it. You know, so it, it, I think the the margins are very small on those kind of horizontal platforms. But if you can really harness a vertical platform, where all of a sudden, you know, wow, this is like a substantially different experience. I think that goes a long way. So it just has to be better.
2: Yeah, and from from my perspective, I also see it needing to be kind of a natural fit to what people do anyway, right? So while people may be used to email and believe me I'm I definitely had a lot of email when I was at Microsoft but it got to a point where email reminders would kinda make you angry right cuz you're off doing something else and now you've got this thing popping up in your face Oh, new email and now I have to leave the thing I was doing and go open this other application and so if you can find something that naturally kind of plugs into the different tools that they tend to live in you know, day in, day out, whatever those tools are, and there's there's so many of them on the market these days that it's gonna require a little bit of research. But but finding the thing that's more natural for people, right? If you have a team where everyone on the team loves Twitter or they love that type of broadcast mechanism, right? Find a tool that kind of fits their personalities. And ideally there'll be kind of other channels into that tool for people who don't, right? Because not everybody is gonna like that style of communication. But yeah to me I, it also just needs to be really natural like it needs to be low friction to use and to just have it be part of what you're doing right And ideally if you can use it both on your computer and your phone right that's even going to be better because almost everyone always has a phone on them on the L in the car whatever
3: <laughs> yeah I think I mean just uh, if I could just kind of add on to that I mean I think what has re- you know if you if you look across the disciplines in an organization you know, DevOps is definitely leading the charge in kind of a new way of thinking about this particular problem domain. But if you look at other parts of the company, um, their tool sets have historically been around collaboration have been much more rich than than the ops or DevOps or even engineering uh, crew. And I think largely that goes back to uh, something that was just said, which is it has to inherently be mobile, at least equally mobile in a DevOps world because you're likely going to have to communicate at any time uh, of the day on weekends in the middle of the night if you're skiing in the mountains I mean that's just the nature of this job is to be able to kind of always be somewhat on and if you're if the tool isn't inherently mobile almost mobile first I would say um, it's not really a collaborative environment for this particular application and that's a little different than than uh... then uh, disciplines that largely happen at your desk during w- working hours and that even goes to you know development teams they tend to do most of their work during working hours they'll develop at home at night but but you know you, you can get you can get your mind around a collaboration tool it's more computer-centric in that world but not around devops when there's so many times they're just everywhere and because the the discipline is so um... Um, diverse. You have a network guy next to an app level guy next to a database guy, and they all have to come together to solve a problem. Inherently, it has to be mobile.
0: Yeah, I was going to say because I think a lot of it is being able to replicate the concept of physical proximity. Right. Yep. Sometimes you have that that luxury of having your team sitting two feet away from each other the whole time, and that, like you said, either it's because you can sometimes you can't do that because you're actually geographically dispersed sometimes you can't do that because it's after hours and how do you how do you replicate the equivalent of being able to shout over there and say you know hey betty you know what's what's going on with uh, that index over there and and, and i guess and then to to step away from 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 tooling a little bit is what what are those kinds of because, again, collaboration is like a big word, and it's kind of a buzzword, and it's kind of a, you know, everybody goes, oh, we're going to talk about SharePoint and collaboration and blah, blah, blah. And, and really, what, what are we trying to accomplish? And I think how, in a DevOps team, what type of collaboration needs to occur? Because I guess we have, to def- we have to figure that out first before we say how we're going to do it. We kind of are coming at it from the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, so... Um again I'll jump in
3: sorry I I get really passionate I get really passionate about this subject so I have a lot uh, a lot of thoughts on it but the um, you know I think an interesting you know interesting thing we talk about at our company that directly goes to this is and we had a lot of internal debate about it is what's the correct um, metaphor right because there's two very distinct metaphors there's sort of the the Twitter like uh, stream of information metaphor, and then there's the chat-based metaphor, right? And they're actually very different behavioral patterns. And which one is kind of appropriate to solve this problem? You know, we we adopted the chat, or not the chat, but the uh, or the Twitter metaphor, where the idea is if you can kind of see what's going on in the organization all the time, not just what people are seeing, but also, you know, the alert stream, things that are happening. You're, you tend to be more engaged with the platform so you can solve a problem faster kind of a, a another way to think of it is sort of the chat metaphor which is which is not the one we went with um, which is more kind of a direct dialogue and even when you present the UI that way to people what they do is if it's a chat based um, metaphor they tend to just kind of talk about the problem which is useful when you want to do that but it sort of excludes the ability to kind of put the idea of the updates and data into it, which we think is a valuable piece of it, too. So it actually is a very interesting thing because chat is a very pervasive metaphor um, among technical people, but and less so uh, the, the Twitter metaphor, but it, it, it's actually very powerful. People don't think of it that way, but but the two are very kind of different, and they're good for different things when you actually drill into it.
2: And I think, too, on the, the collaboration front, because like you said, it's a big word, right? Everyone's using it. Um, and I think it's one of those things where sometimes companies see collaboration and information, even if it's kind of a deluge of information, is the same thing, right? So it's making sure that the information is getting to the right people and that it's the right information right just spewing forth all the information possible is is not really helpful to the DevOps guys if they're having to filter through it and and make sure that they're seeing what's important so there certainly needs to be some expectations up front of hey what's really valuable what do we need you to focus on rather than just tell me as much as you can and make me do all the work to really get the value out of it
3: yeah filtering is important
0: and and also, I think you know we've been talking about tools that are are team based, or talking about ideas. To me, that's within the team. That's that's like the delivery team that's delivering the actual technology. But then then I think about within the organization and how do you communicate and and bring the rest of the business into that. Um, as, and how as far do you that separate goes.
1: that information out so that it's only the useful information?
0: Right that's I think that's that's super key because it's really easy again I mean I'm this is this is the problem with you know the, the tech ops guy sits here and says you get so much noise you ignore everything right so yeah. so you want to provide that filtering and then the same thing can happen to somebody quote unquote on the business side if you're getting updates every you know you don't every commit or every whatever you just sort of go I don't really care um, but I think it's I think it's really necessary to provide the transparency to the rest of the organization, um, warts and all, right? You know, this is what we're doing that's that's right and that's not. And I know one one thing I was really, really uh, I guess a good success story about about this was we had a challenge uh, in a company I was at where one of our applications was 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 spewing errors in the logs, and they weren't necessarily we we didn't the problem was we didn't know if they were really errors or not we didn't know if it was really a problem or something in the code that was just generating logs but there's so much noise that it was really impossible to provide the analysis and the delivery team is going to the product owner and saying hey we need to put in a story we need to someone has to look at this and figure this out and someone on the product side doesn't doesn't understand what this means And they say, well is there something wrong well we don't know and uh, we, shortly after this we implemented uh, Splunk and we created dashboards that presented, provided you know sort of like this is how many errors and when they saw that our application was throwing 14,000 errors a minute and that was on a big screen that the entire company walked past very quickly it got looked at and I think it's not necessarily a bad thing when you have statistics but people want to be able to know And 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 should be able to to find that information on their own. Like Angela said, people should be able to consume the way that they want to. If I want to use IRC, I want to use my email client. I want to use a feed reader. That I think that's another key component of it. Um, is people like to consume information the way they want to consume it?
3: It's one of those things. There's limitations to it, though. It's a great example of um, you know, like uh, I'm a big believer that in a perfect world, everything goes into the same timeline you know it's kind of like the black box recorder of the whole the whole business right i want to know what the technical problems were i want to know what the problems were that that were coming from tech support i want to know kind of everything in sort of one timeline but then i want infinite filterability on it rather than rather than a room metaphor where the, all these things go into different rooms that's actually not so useful in a forensic sense or in the ability to kind of later go back and then you know, reduce all the data and figure out what's going on. Instead it's much more useful if it's all in one stream, but infinitely and easily filterable. And that kind of leads back to the horizontal versus vertical collaboration platform problem. When you pump all of that into a horizontal platform, it just becomes an unmanageable stream. It's all time. noise. It's just noise. And that irritates people. So what they do is they pull data out of the stream, but that actually doesn't help the organization in the long term because then when you actually want to do a postmortem on what's happening, you have to pull it from seven different sources, and it's actually you know really hard to recreate sort of what went down. So the metaphor of kind of the single timeline infinitely filterable, I think, is is super powerful. But it's a very vertical concept in the DevOps up space, um, and historically, it's been kind of you know DevOps space has been driven by more horizontal tools. So I think that's a maturity thing. That we have the you know the ability to kind of reengineer over the next you know five or ten years to say how do we really get all of those things together right and kind of get to the point I think you were kind of making that is how do we get I think to a certain degree we have to get a little bit out of the separate tools mentality and sort yeah. of get into the platform mentality um, that exists probably in other areas of the business that you can really dig into the data and see what's going on.
2: Something else that that I just wanted to bring up, and I'm sure it's it's obvious, but so far we've been doing a lot of focusing on on tools, which tools do a great job of um, kind of providing some of the stuff we're talking about, right? Ways to kind of automate data feeds, ways to be able to bring people together that are remote; they're not able to sit together. But at the end of the day, it you also you're just going to have to do some of that collaboration face to face because, you know, you can provide the best dashboards in the world, but without the context. Um, you can have people that take data and do very evil things with data right they start looking at bug numbers and and severities and then before you know it they're they're using that to kind of figure out like how valuable is a team or what are they producing based on numbers and so i think it's still really important to make sure that teams are still meeting face to face and talking about things and whether it's you know inviting product owners and stakeholders or retrospectives or whatever you need to do um, to make sure that you're always going to have that face-to-face because at the end of the day you still need to make sure that you have some kind of connection with people and it's not just kind of a tool acting as as the interface
3: I think you know I, I, you, you bring up a great point and I had a question I kind of wanted to ask you guys is from my I've been in this I've been doing this a while obviously in different uh, you know pretty much through my whole career and it seems to me that um, the act of you know, of you know writing software and deploying software and now operating it has inherently become a more social thing than it was a decade ago, right? And and you know you don't have to look any further than things like GitHub, um, where in a in a sense part of it is an exhibition sport to see you know who's got the coolest stuff out there, but that fosters a communication. And then I think the other interesting thing, because that's sort of that's thing one, I think it's more social, I'm curious what you guys think. I think thing two is um, I think with the DevOps movement and the codification of deployment, that's actually created a common language between devs and, uh, and the ops people that probably didn't exist before because it used to be kind of a you know, an independent cowboy deal. And now it's much more of the sort of a common language of writing code and making things happen. And I'm curious what you guys think about kind of that social element and, and how that's affected things. Do you have that same viewpoint or has it just kind of always been that way based on your uh, you know, your generation, because I'm a little
0: older? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. And especially with your second point, because that's a passion of mine. I'm I'm Mr. Infrastructure's code. I mean that's that's what I do for a living and is go to organizations and help them learn that. Um, and it's it's very true. And and again, you know, kind of the joke. And and Angela's known me a long time, and so I came up as the grizzled old sysadmin that sat in my silo and <laughs> bitched about those cowboy developers that wanted <laughs> access to production and all this stuff. And I've done my 180. But but the reason that that can happen is just what you said is because it's the the fact that doing infrastructure work has become more like development. And I guess the irony of it is that that's really where it started, right? If we really want to go back and, and way back before any of our time, you too, Todd, right? You know what I mean? Like the early, early, you know, early, early sysadmins, you had to code because you had to write your tools because they didn't exist. And we're getting back to that, I think, which is what's very cool because now we're, we're getting away from there was a generation of time, there was a time when you kept the you know, when you ran ops and there were, were tools you used, and if you wanted a tool, you bought it or you found it or you had someone do it. And and what I see a lot of now is people that I really look up to or that I that I work with that I still consider infrastructure people are sitting and they're they're writing code um to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps ops and dev, like you said, speak a common language. Um, and in some ways I think it's a little easier that the sort of DevOps meld. I feel is easier for developers than it is for ops because a lot of what we're talking about doing is adopting practices that de- that developers have been doing for years and that are foreign to ops. Yeah, you know things like test driven development. You know, help testing at all. Right. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> version control. Like as an ops person, I knew what it was because that's how I deploy code, but I didn't work in that versioning metaphor unless I had to, and so. Ops people should be learning from from Dev folks. and then but by the same token, I think Dev people, as we move to this more service oriented type of software, and people are you know think more creating things like your Netflixes and where we think about things as a service and not as package software. and there's still plenty of packaged software. But if something's a service, you have to care a lot more about it operationally. Than you ever had to as a developer before, and Angela, I know you've, you know, you're, you've spent a lot of time with a lot of different folks on the ALM side and the dev side, and I'm, I'm curious to see if, if, if you would agree that you're seeing that shift from folks who are handling the application side of the world.
2: No, absolutely. So, you know, of course in the beginning when I was when I was a consultant the first time around, um, there, I didn't work for a lot of companies that had DevOps teams. A lot of times, scary as it is, we were the ones pushing things to production. Um, and kind of as we got farther and farther, you know, as, as I guess the software world got more mature, there would start to be DevOps groups, but you know, they didn't call them DevOps back then. It was, oh, those are the networking guys or those are the IT guys, right? And there was definitely a wall, right? You knew that you 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 dropped a deliverable in some folder and then they picked it up and did their thing and there wasn't really communication. And of course, again, this was a while ago. Um, when I was with Microsoft, so this was like 2005 through 2011, I definitely started seeing a shift, right? We We started noticing that you know, we'd, we'd have meetings, right? I was an evangelist on the, the ALM side, so I primarily was talking to developers. But, we, you know, we started noticing that infrastructure folks were showing up to the meetings. They were very interested in learning about what source control was being used, what deployment tools were being used. And it was really interesting to see kind of that, that change in dynamic, right? It started to become one big team instead of a lot of little teams. So I'm not gonna say that's not still true. I certainly work with customers today where you know, they kind of do the hand-waving, oh, there's a DevOps group that does that stuff, and and they don't pull them in, and so that's usually my challenge, you know, how to make sure that they do pull them in, and they do get them involved in the process. Now, the, the other thing that you were talking about that was kind of interesting was was the social side, right? So, writing software has become a much more social thing than it was in the past, um, and that's absolutely true, and I'm, I'm certainly more on the software side than the DevOps side, so you know the the speaking to the social aspect of it is probably where i have a little bit more experience but it does seem like the companies that i work for where they do treat creating software as a social activity they're far more successful they're you know they're far less dysfunctional right they don't have a lot of the same issues about you know contention between teams or you know people trying to kind of sandbag on estimates and stuff they don't necessarily have those same issues because you know it's very social they kind of they all rely on each other they're all tr- they all trust each other and i i don't think there's quite enough stress on that in some of the larger organizations because i feel like the larger the organization gets of course it's harder right to to have kind of social groups because now you have you know dozens of developers maybe hundreds instead of small groups but it's still possible right and i i think i think there almost needs to be more evangelism of that as an aspect right don't don't treat software groups like each each team needs to be kind of in its own little world. Make sure that everyone is talking because that's how they learn from each other.
1: Right. I mean, I've obviously probably been, have the least experience of everybody in the room presently, um, but even, you know, I will say both jobs I've had now have been heavily socially involved. The first one maybe a little bit less, we were kind of siloed in our own areas, but there was always some kind of collaboration when you got stuck. It wasn't pairing per se, but it was more of a, let me pick your brain for a minute to see if we can get around the issue. And to kind of talk to what you were talking about, Angela, uh, earlier. Yeah, it's hard to get, I'm, I'm finding it's harder for devs to understand sometimes the value of owning the owning or understanding that they do have some responsibility in assisting with ops. Um, I just had a conversation with uh, somebody the other day and we were talking about, you know, maintaining our development environments and preparing them to discuss with the client about how they're going to, how it needs to fit into their production environments when the product is ready. And, you know, their response was a flat, Oh, that's up to them. They can figure that out as opposed to, you know, we should be working together to collaborate and, uh, Make sure everything's going to be smooth at all times.
3: So, so I think an interesting question, another interesting question. I want to hear uh, what Angela thinks about this, because uh, I agree. I mean, I think that the whole idea of collaboration is so intertwined with the social aspects of this that it's it's kind of you almost have to talk about the two simultaneously. Is and I've asked this question in other forums, and I'm curious what the people around the table here think about it. Is 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 having a separate DevOps group just kind of a temporal situation so it does you know, if you fast forward 10 years is there such thing as a devops group or is everyone in the devops group does the group consume everyone in dev and ops eventually because it's kind of a um, a shift in behavior you know I, I mean you know we in my company you know in the software we build and the product we're offering we sort of believe it's heading that way Where everyone sort of has responsibility on the technical side for the execution of the system, and the lines are blurring partly because of the codification and the common language. And yes, there'll be different people have expertise within that group, but everyone sort of has responsibility. Everyone can, at any time, look at their phone and know the health of the organ, you know, the technical health of the system. This is the world we believe in. But I'm curious what you know what you guys believe in in terms of is it always a separate function or does it consume all of those technical parts eventually?
0: Um, I'll I'll answer first because this is something I feel pretty passionately about and Trevor's probably chuckling to himself because Oh is... I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a big believer in uh, that DevOps is a is a it's not a tool title or team it's a philosophy and in our last episode, we, that was actually one of the myths that we talked about is that, you know, you need to have a team called DevOps. Um, so, and, and, But we but we actually have found that, that that works. But it depends on what you're calling it. And a lot of times, like uh, Sasha last week, or last week, last episode mentioned that a lot of times when people talk about a DevOps team, they're really talking about a developer tools team. Um, and... Trevor, you and I were just IMing about this yesterday. Yep. I think this is your new job, right?
1: <laughs> yep, um, I was just elected stack lead of DevOps, which <laughs> the, the subset was CIs, uh, Azure, AWS, <laughs> etc. So, so,
0: so, but I, I believe <laughs> to your point that where we're going though is that the idea is within a delivery team, a team who's responsible for delivering a product, delivering software is a should can and should be a cross-functional team and like you said everyone has their core skills you don't expect everybody to be able to do everything and I, I I've told teams that I managed in the past um, that were just sysadmins, but still was that I said I don't believe that everybody should be able to do everything but that anybody should be able to do most things mm-hmm. and that you and primarily you shouldn't you should never sit there and say you know, oh well that's not that's a that's a dev thing. That's a that's a sysadmin, that's a QA thing. Uh, we did an episode where we talked to developers and uh, I'm a little peeved that this never played out, but we laid down a challenge at the end of the episode where we said, hey, if you're a developer and your next stand up, pull a task off the board that's not a dev task. Help somebody else out and then let us know how that worked out for you. And
1: I think we we're actually, the only ones who did it.
0: Yeah, I think you're the only one who did it.
1: <laughs> you did it too, because you, you, you challenged ops to pick up dev stuff.
0: That's true. I challenged them to do so, but... I'm I, saying
1: you did that challenge. You said that that week you wound up having to do some code. Oh, maybe. I well, see, you, yeah, wonderful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so bringing up history,
1: it. and you don't even remember how it went down.
0: That's true. That was ancient history. It was at least a month and a half ago. So <laughs> so that that's sort of my, my thought, is that it's really about a cross-functional team but that's but the reality is I think that's more aspirational than than executed in a lot of places I, th-
3: I, I I I would take a little bit of exception to that because we're in the position where we see the behaviors of lots of teams right mm-hmm. so we have kind of a unique position and we actually label them kind of old-school and new-school companies you know, um, old school companies will deploy our stuff into just kind of an ops functionality group, and it's, you know, 20 or 30 seats. But then you'll find a new school company that everyone in dev and ops gets our stuff. And that's, yeah. you know, in hundreds of seats. And to me, that's very indicative of there is a change afoot here, right? And it's just like everything that's socially based, it's going to take five or six years or 10 years to play it out. But, but there are amazingly progressive companies out there that everyone has pager duty. You know, everyone mm-hmm. responds yeah. to those stuff. And I think that's pretty encouraging. It's actually okay. more po- – I think it's very positive. I think it's much more progressive than I thought it would be when I started the company. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting piece of data.
0: Oh, I, don't th- I don't think we disagree. I think that you, you were – maybe I wasn't saying it clearly, but that's, that was my point. Well, are well, you're, you're, well, I think we're both right. You're right. There's yeah. a lot of companies that aren't behaving that way. Yeah. Uh, and
3: I'm surprised how many there are that are. But it's still a mix.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're coming to an inflection point where. You you saw it. You're you're seeing it where more and more places are seeing the potential value, but they don't necessarily know how to get there. Right. And that's you know why people that's like me have a I'm job. Hoping to, you know. <laughs> hoping <to facilitate.
1: laughs> That's 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 my goal uh, with this new. Uh, it's not really a title. It's a it, it's an honorary thing. It's but... it's more
0: work for no more pay.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> he, 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 now oh, ahead. Trevor, you're learning. <laughs> <laughs> so let so, so but, let me poke let me poke at the last
3: element of the social change part because I find this stuff super interesting which is why I have taken over uh, this question in line is the um, is there a generational aspect to this are the younger guys more likely to be codifying the operation stuff and the older guys are more likely to hold on to their and I use guys but it's you know obviously you know everyone um, is there a generational component because I get about mixed answers on that from people
2: you know I've just since I'm in consulting, I work with a lot of different companies. I've actually seen a mix. You know, I, I feel like kind of the knee jerk is, oh, the the people who've been at the company for 30 years are, are not going to want to change. And that that certainly happens, but I've also been really surprised where sometimes you know, they're the ones who've been doing it for the longest and so they're the most fed up with how things have been going and so they're ready for something new. They're ready for a change. Um, and, and I think sometimes I think that fear of changing the way you're doing things isn't it's not necessarily related to age or how long you've been there, but it's more of a personality thing. Um, That's exactly like, what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, like, do you feel secure enough that that you could change the way you do your job and you're not going to be seen differently, or you're not going to lose faith? Or it, it seems like it has a lot more to do with kind of confidence than anything, right? Am I confident that if we completely turn the way I do things upside down, that I'll still be successful? Or you know, on the the flip side of that too is also um, how are those things? handled by management, right? Is management willing to kind of take that hit of we're going to change things and it might be ugly for a few months and if the people that work for them are nervous about their jobs or they're afraid they're going to get yelled at because now things take longer, those are generally the places where I see them more hesitant to change is where management doesn't really buy into the concept that change is hard but it'll be worth it in the long run.
1: I've seen some of that but I also think it's um... A lot of the people who seem to want to push against it are also pushing against it because they're more afraid of additional responsibility and having having more work to do. They think that, you know, so, oh, well, this is another set of things that I'm responsible for. I'm going to be here an extra 10 hours a week because now I'm a DevOps person. You know, people – I would say kind of more people who don't get it are kind of, you know, who have – it hasn't really been explained to them in a way that it clicks um, is it
3: is it fair to say they um, uh, maybe that particular individual at least some percentage of them actually kind of um, enjoy the fact they're a little disconnected from the business as a whole they kind of like doing what they're doing they like you know the automation they like the stuff but kind of the more the closer they get to the actual business they get less interested in it and this represents sort of something that's you know, irreversibly sucking them toward the actual business and what's going on. Is that fair? Do you think that that goes I think, on? I
1: think that's a that's a good way of describing the, the people I'm thinking of. You know, much more interested in, in writing software than wanting to be in meetings or, you know, being involved in the business.
3: Right. And there's all kinds of people. It's not that it's good or mm-hmm. bad. It's just no. it's just I think DevOps definitely brings you as a technical person closer to the health and the livelihood and the heartbeat mm-hmm. of the business and it, it's, a, it's probably okay not to want to be there but it's kind of a unstoppable force in some way I think
0: what was right. the Trevor I'm trying to remember exactly how, how Damon Edwards said it last last time but he said something about the the biggest Blocker or the biggest sacred cow when you talk about DevOps is against it is well that's the way we've always done it. Yep. You know, and then and I think that's where you get into. Um, and I do agree, Angela, your point that if someone's been with an organization for a long time, they can sometimes be really open to this stuff because, like you said, they're the most fed up. But also, I think it's not necessarily generational, but it's experience. experience, Depends on how much experience you've had. (laughs) (laughs) If you're someone who's been working at the same firm for the last thirty years and you know one way to do it, and you know the big bank way of doing it, or you know the this particular organization's way of doing it, then you're probably out of your comfort zone to think about doing something in a different way. Especially because generally, stuff works, right? I mean, things are not catching on fire. We're just trying to make them better. We're not trying to, you know, keep a ship from sinking. Especially if you've been somewhere for twenty years, the ship probably isn't sinking. Right. So it's it's hard to argue um, against that. But it's you know, uh, I don't don't remember the rest. I do I do
3: have an empathy for kind of old school ops people, right, in this world, because I think it's much easier for a dev to come over to this and go, "Yeah, you codify it." And it's like, yeah. "Why wouldn't you do that? It's so much easier." And so you have to learn kind of some new things. But if you're kind of an old school ops person, you have to actually learn to code. I mean, because some of them don't know that, right? I've had a yeah. lot of these teams, and that's probably pretty scary because you know, you sort of feel the force, you feel what's happening. You're, you know, it, it it's like anybody in any career, like when you start to see this a sea change occur can be a little scary so I definitely have empathy uh, empathy for those people because they're super smart people they're they're historically like th- the most passionate you know, they have this undying knowledge that they have to keep the machine running yeah. and they get absolutely no credit for it at all the CEO probably doesn't know unless it goes to total shit and so you have, you know, it, it's it's kind it's kind of unfair, but it's kind of what needs to happen, I think, to to maintain your career, you know. And it's much yeah, easier I, on the dev side, I think. Well, much right,
0: and 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 like I said, most of my up until recently, I I've spent my entire career in ops, and I, it kind of makes me laugh when you said that about you know getting you know nobody knows what you do, and and my last uh, the 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 dot com I was in at the well I guess word dot com the e commerce. Uh, company I work for on our Yammer site, you know, you'd have to have your little profile explain what you did. And mine said, you have no idea what my team does and that's a good thing. (laughs) You know, because if you knew what we did, you know, if if you know what tech ops is doing, we've done something wrong. But the downside is and and also, you know, you take it very personally, and ops people are used to being, you know, I've sort of my, my joke has always been that ops doesn't have a dog to kick. You know, if you think about the whole thing about you know the so and so yells at so and so it goes down and then somebody kicks a dog. Well, the dog doesn't get to kick anybody. Right. The other downside, the other way of saying that is that flows downhill to tech ops, but and that's where it stops. So they're yep. the ones who feel rightly or wrongly. And the thing is, sometimes this is incorrect, but they feel tech ops feels like they're the ones who are on the hook for stability. Mm-hmm. And so things that look like they threaten stability. And the irony is, a lot of this stuff we're talking about when we talk about continuous delivery, small batch size, quick release, DevOps, all this stuff, is all built really around more stability. Right. And and I think that's where it becomes, it's a, a really hard sell to get people who are used to saying, like, I want my command and control because I, I trust my team and that's it. Mm-hmm. To see that there's really a more stable way of doing it. And I think there's an argument to be made, um, too, that
3: you know if you really if you really adopt continuous deployment and you're true to it it doesn't necessarily mean you're less busy as a traditional ops person in fact I would make the case you actually have kind of a harder job but when you do run into problems they tend to be much smaller and easier to solve but the frequency is higher because you're, you're, you're essentially destabilizing the system to some degree Potentially every single day, but when the problem does occur, it's like if you just have access to the right person, they'll go, "Oh, that's that one thing." Go, okay, great, and then it's fixed. It's not like it was, you know, ten years ago when you do a, a deployment every six months and then everything's, you know, wrapped f- for six months yeah. or for a for a whole week. You know, mm-hmm sorry, I have to get
0: wrapped every day. I was getting late. <laughs> Well, and I think the problems avoided. become more interesting, too, you know, that mm-hmm. I – when when we get into that because there's – and when I go work with clients and, you know, to understand we say we're doing infrastructure automation, we're, we're doing this, you know, um, uh, infrastructure as code and more automated release and all this stuff. And we said we're not trying to automate people out of work. Right. You know, none of this is reduction in headcount. We yeah. never – I've never known one of these teams to get smaller. No. We're just <laughs> saying we're giving you something more interesting to do. And right. you know, I had a, a team before when we were doing this when I was was in industry and when we kind of started the project and they, they sat there and said, Well, what are we gonna do? And I said, You're gonna do what I'm paying you to do. Because I'm paying you an awful lot of money to copy files around. <laughs> you know? And I'd rather you like innovate and do something good, you know, helpful yeah. and do what good. you're good at. You know what so I think that's a that's a huge one. So so when we think about again how we how we talk, so we've talked about like how you know how we can communicate more. We've talked about some tools. Um, now what about just even within within a discipline? There's there's an interesting thing that I think uh, uh, I think it was Jess Humble that said when he was talking about we were talking about uh, was talking about um, continuous integration and about how CI is and and just source control in general and commits basically are forcing developers to talk to each other right. and you yeah. know Angela I know you're very passionate around ALM and I'm I'm curious to to what you what you see as good practices around the life cycle of an application and making sure all the right people are are knowing the things they need to know
2: right The the thing that I always tell everybody regardless of what their process is right like I think everybody should be looking at what are considered the best practices of agile which if you boil it down are just best practices in software development they have nothing to do with agile right talking to your team every day making sure that you're constantly prioritizing based on the right things those are things you should be doing regardless of what your methodology is but but specifically having those stand ups I talked to some of the most waterfall customers you've ever met but that's just how they have to operate because of what they do right that's that's just their industry but I've 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 gotten I've convinced a lot of them to start doing stand-ups every morning. Like, I don't care if you only deliver once every four months. You should still be meeting every day for at least 15 minutes, right? Talk about what issues you have. Discuss what features are going out, you know, in this, you know, small release. Because people tend to think, well, we're only releasing every six months. No, you're only releasing to the public every six months, right? That doesn't mean that internally you can't actually be very cyclical and work in very small chunks and then just you know kick it out to the public once every six months but I i know it kinda goes back to what I was saying earlier about just getting face to face with people and and just talking right I i think people it's been a while since this was true but people did get way too used to just sitting in their cube all day and working in a silo and their problems were their problems and occasionally they might go you know hey could you help me with this but there wasn't a whole lot of that right and i I think there's starting to be more and more of that being socialized within companies. It's you know, it's okay to sit next to somebody for a couple hours and bang it out cuz it's easier than you sitting at your desk for a day and a half trying to do the same thing. So I I just encourage people to do that and even within other groups. A lot of times people think that's just a developer thing, but I encourage testers, BAs, PMs, everybody. You know, get together with not only your whole team but get together with each other, right? There's no reason developers across different products can't learn from each other or QA people that work in different teams can't talk to each other.
0: Totally agree. Yep. So as we're as we're coming up to our end, I want I want to go around the horn, and have, have everybody give just a one 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 or two sentences. If you had to give one tip, that would be how you can improve collaboration or communication within your team. What would be your one thing that you want someone to come away from this podcast with, um, and
1: I'm gonna throw you under the bus this time you're going first
0: Oh, okay sweet no email stop using email find something else
2: (laughs) so I'll go next Um, my biggest piece of advice is use your feet go talk to people right I feel like email I am just becomes a crutch and there's there's way too much context that can be lost you can misconstrue someone's tone (laughs) in an email just you know just move and talk to people if you can right? if you can't get on Google hangout or link or Skype or whatever right but face to face is always best if you can do it
3: yeah I think mine would be you know agile every technology or every kind of movement we've talked about today is driving uh, development and operations closer to the heartbeat of the business so make sure what you're doing is going there right and one of the key uh, the key things that we didn't talk about uh, but it's one of my things that I wanted people to take away was um, figure out how to quantify your job in terms of value to the business because it's the single biggest thing I see when I talk to teams is they actually don't understand the value of downtime in their business and and because of that you know they don't actually have a number they don't know what that is and that causes them problems all the way through the system because they can't advocate for equipment they know they need they can't advocate for tools they know they should buy and it's because the business speaks you know the business it doesn't speak because it's broken right and i think that devops gives the ability to quantify things because you're starting to write code you're keeping statistics you just have to go that one more step to make it into real money, and then every it will unlock the universe for you in in your business. And I think that uh, it's a whole another topic on, in and of itself. But I think it's it's kind of where this is all going.
1: And for me, I would just say make sure you know how to talk to everybody on your team. Not everybody's the same. Make sure you you can express yourself well to the other members of your team and the rest of your company, you know, if, you know, if the CEO walks by and he asks you a question about your project, make sure you're able to describe it in a way that makes sense to them or, you know, just be, be mindful of who you're talking to and, you know, it's always going to help when you collaborate.
0: Agree. Great. Great. All right, so it's time for checkouts and where everybody will suggest something for the audience to check out. and uh, Angela, you want to jump in?
2: Sure. Um, I've got two. I wasn't exactly sure where to go with this, so I did one that was that was on topic and one that's just kind of a fun, silly thing that I like. so I hope that's all right. That's <laughs> We like so, the fun,
0: silly things the best.
2: So I'll, I'll save that for last. Um, so the first thing is actually a book, and this is this is so not a software book, but it's one that, that I keep referring people to, and everyone who reads it thanks me for it. So it's a book called Drive, and it's by Daniel Pink. And I'm sure, yeah, yeah, I see heads nodding. You, you, yeah, I've been to so many conferences, Agile and ALM related, where they're like, you must read this book. It's short, it's like 10 bucks. Um, but the great thing about the book is it helps you to understand what motivates people and what drives people to, to act and react the way they do because you know I often joke that ever since I kind of moved out of software development and more into ALM and process, I feel like I need to go back to school and get a degree in psychology to understand, you know, exactly what Trevor was saying. How do you communicate with people in a way that's effective? And how do you make sure that you Kind of encourage the right behavior and respond in ways that are that are effective for each person because we're not all the same. Um, so I always recommend that book because it's short. Doesn't matter what you do for a living, it's super effective at helping you to at least understand what motivates people. Right? They don't disagree with you because they're a bad person. They disagree with you because, you know, one of of anything that could be kind of affecting where they're coming from. So that's that's my. Kind of podcast related. Um, the non podcast related, because we're dealing with so much cold weather, um, there's a store that I love, uh, a site that you should go to called Sock Dreams. So, literally, sockdreams.com. Um, I have tons of leg warmers and wool socks that are keeping me from freezing to death right now. So, <laughs> it's a fun store. And if you're also in the Chicago Land area, freezing from the polar vortex, check them out.
3: Awesome. Um, I have two things, but the first thing it might I took the same kind of deal. So the first thing here is, uh, can't really see it, but you'll have it up there, is uh, a research brief by Aberdeen Group about data center downtime and how much does it really cost. And this goes directly, it's it's like four pages, right, because it's kind of a leader for another thing. So easy to consume, easy to look at, but the reason I encourage, especially DevOps people to read it, is this notion of being able to quantify what you're doing in the language of the business. And when you read this, you'll think in a different light when you ask to buy a specific piece of software or a specific piece of hardware or even a consultant or whatever you need. What you're spending is trivial compared to what you're saving the business, and you inherently need to be able to quantify that. So I think it's super interesting. It'll kind of get you in the mindset and get you going there. The second thing is I, uh, my previous business was all about the independent online publishers. We had thousands and thousands and thousands of them, so I got to know a lot of them. And there's a great one that um, is uh, it's a cooking blog, and it has the best barbecue chicken recipe cool. I have ever found, <laughs> and I encourage you to try it. Great. Trevor? Um,
1: <clears throat> so my serious one this time is uh, its an article by, uh, I'm going to totally butcher this, person's name, and I apologize if they listen to this, by a manual, I want to say GooseArt. It's called uh, Coding for SSDs, Um, and basically it's a deep dive on how SSDs work and how best to optimize your code to take advantage of the things that SSDs can do that hard drives can't do, Um, and it's really interesting and really detailed, and uh, I will post a link to it in the notes. Uh, secondly, I've been listening to uh, the Vitamin String Quartet a lot lately, which is uh, a group I, I've liked for a long time. They um, take contemporary, popular-ish music and uh, compose it for String Quartet and play it. There's 96 albums of them on wow. Google Play, <laughs> um, covering everything from The Beatles to Metallica to The Decemberists to um, Skrillex. Uh, Daft Punk, you you mostly you name it they've done something from a band um, and it's all really fun um, to hear music you love in this quartet form. Um, yeah, Man String Quartet. Matt?
0: Great okay um, I have a couple and as my hat would indicate they're they're all chef oriented. Uh, <laughs> so the first one is for a tool uh, called Mise, as in uh, mise en place. I think is how you say it. Which is what's the what's the French word that for like basically setting up your cooking station, um, and it's a ruby gem that puts everything in place that you need with Berkshelf and Vagrant and all all the assorted things to get started. Uh, it's a project that's a work in progress. Um, we've been following it pretty closely. I'm, I'm real excited about it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's, it's pretty awesome if you're a chef type person and want to get things going. Um, also wanted to talk about, so ChefConf is coming up in April and I've just confirmed that I will be there. I'm not speaking or anything, I'm just going. So, uh, and I think the early bird pricing is, is ending soon, so if you're a chef type person you should, you should come because uh, I'll be there. And um, I do believe that Food Fight and uh, Ship Show are going to be there, too, and we may be doing a joint podcast. And then one other thing, a local thing to check out, uh, is uh, this Thursday, as in two days, well, it's the it's the 27th. Who knows when you're listening to it, you may have missed it. But the Downtown Chicago Azure meetup is having our speed dating in the cloud event at Cloud Bakers where we'll be heading uh doing a showdown between uh Google's cloud technologies and Microsoft's and uh, I will be representing uh Microsoft Azure infrastructure as a service. So go ahead check that out. I'll put the link in the show notes and my final little shout, two little shout-outs that I want to give is uh, my company Tenth Magnitude. We're hiring uh, for a .NET developer. So if you know, if you're in the Chicago area, and you're a .NET rock star and would like to join a pretty awesome place, uh, you can come to arresteddevops.com/jobs and there's a link to the job. And we also are doing a contest right now at arresteddevops for and so if you come to arresteddevops.com/giveaway you can enter our contest and you might win yourself a Amazon.com gift card. So I just want to make sure to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you to uh, Angela uh, and Todd. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate your time and your input. Uh, everybody, make sure you check us out at a rev. Uh, see, I told you I was going to mention the <laughs> of the damn podcast. <laughs> Jeez, one of these days. <laughs> you can check us out at arresteddevops.com or at arresteddevops on Twitter. I'm Matt, at Matt Stratton.
1: And I'm Trevor, at Trevor G. Hess.
0: We're arrested DevOps.
1: And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.